2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime.
1: LGBT. thriller. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Wherever you listen to podcasts, ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
1: Now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Um, Hohenhaeber and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050
3: AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. David Martino. Yes, present. I'm here. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I stole that from Richard Dawson. Well, there you go. <laughs> Most people don't know who he is anymore. So you're bringing that's up true. people you know, I always do that. Well you're getting better. <laughs> you're getting better, because I know you were talking about what was that? Danny Thomas. Was it Danny Thomas? Oh, I don't know. One oh no, oh, Benny uh no. Oh Benny oh no, it wasn't him. It was somebody Jack Benny. Oh Jack Benny, that's it. Jack I almost Benny. said Benny Goodman. His show went Check off me. when you were just barely being born. So what do you got I know. to know? You got to, well, at least. I have history, Al. Yeah, I know. I know history. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody else. Come on, Richard Dawson, you know. That's better. Yeah. It's better because at it least is. they can watch. But when I, I had that Hogan's Heroes in that last book, um, people didn't know who he was, Robert Crane. Wow. And really? a lot of people sending messages and saying, well, who, who's, who, who is, is this thing? <laughs> they knew That's... Princess Diana, but they were kind of like, well, who's this guy?
1: Wow. And it's
3: like, well, it was a big show. And I, you know, but if yeah. you think about it, it went off the air by the eighties, right? It was all, yeah. Gone. Yeah. That's a long time. You know, I'm old. You pff- get the <laughs> wheelchair out. I know. Well, <laughs> so now today we are going into, uh, writers again, and uh, yeah. this time we are going to be talking about kind of a, a woman sleuth, police procedural, kind of that mm. sort of thing. But anyway, Hollow Beasts, and it's the Jody Luna book one, and the author is with us, and that's Alisa Lynn Valdez. Thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: This is book one in a series. How did you come across writing a series like this? Like, where did it begin for you?
0: This is my first foray into suspense thriller, territory, so I'm very excited about that. I've, I've been a novelist for 20 years. Um, I have a dozen other books out, but in different genres, so I wrote commercial women's fiction, young adult fiction, and I have one memoir, and then I took some time off. It's been about 10 years since my last novel. I'm a single parent, so I was homeschooling my kid, raising my kid, and doing some other things, um, being a teacher, and uh, I just... When I first began in novels, my first novel, which was—I really not—I hate this term, but they called it chicklet, you know—and it did really well. Um, even though I'd kind of written, it was almost a parody, but nobody realized it was a parody, and then it did really well. <laughs> and that, <laughs> thats a double-edged sword in a way because they want you to kind of keep writing that same book over and over again. And so that's why I took a break. I was just like, I've said everything I—I wanted to say in that arena. And, and you know, before that, I had spent 10 years as a, a staff writer for the Boston Globe and the LA Times. So I've been writing all my life. When I read novels, even from high school on, I always read suspense and thrillers. But at the time that I was starting out 20 years ago as a novelist, I was sort of writing what I, knew, you know, from researching as a reporter, like what the market was looking for in a way at that time. Because I was expecting my son and I wanted to have I wanted to leave my day job and have more control over my time and make a living as a novelist. So I did the commercial women's fiction thing. But my heart has always been in suspense. Dean Koontz is my favorite writer, like, of all time. It was kind of nice in a way to take that break because when I came back to writing novels, I felt freer you know and also being in you know, middle aged now i'm not as interested in doing what other people want or expect me to do i'm more interested you know as you get older you start to think i want right. to i want to live the life that i want to live now and so that's what i did hollow beasts is you know the jodi luna series is sort of the the more authentic version of me as a writer and i'm not saying the other books weren't authentic they were They were different, and and I put my heart and soul into them, but this one feels really near and dear to me. I'm a native New Mexican uh, from the state of New Mexico. I say that because, confoundingly, I've met many people who don't realize that New Mexico is a state. (laughs) Uh, It's it's between Arizona and Texas uh, and below Colorado. Um, So, yeah, this is sort of the first book that I've set there oh uh, and you know here i came back 20 years ago after being gone for 15 years and it's a love letter to new mexico it's a thriller it's um a middle-aged you know woman protagonist i just it's a book i wanted to read and couldn't find basically
3: well there's a different type of rebellion when you're older right you you're, you're mm-hmm. writing more about what you want not not necessarily what they want you to write so that... It's a different type than when you're younger. Yeah. Um, but your, your, your main character, like Jody, how do you come up with that kind of a character? Like, is this a lot of you going into this character, or is it based on someone else?
0: She is, in, in, in the case of Jodi Luna, this protagonist, she almost, uh, there's, there's a bit of me in her for sure, that she's, you know, in her middle age, she's a single parent, In her case, she's a widow, and she was a writer, so those things we have in common. She's from New Mexico. She left New Mexico to go to college, like many people here. You know, when you grow up in a place like New Mexico, you kind of feel like nothing important ever happens here if you're ambitious, and that's a a mistake, I think, and it took me 15 years away to realize there's a lot I didn't appreciate about my home state, and uh, that it, it isn't as bad as you think when you're growing up here. It's kind of like Canada, like this undeserved inferiority complex. It's like, we really are pretty cool. We've got some good <laughs> stuff here. So she has that in common with me. Um, but otherwise, she's way more of – she's just, a, a, I want to say, a badass. Hopefully I can say that. She's just way tougher than I am. She's a cop. She's. You know, she's just really – just tough, and she's what I would like to be. So, there's parts of her that are like me, and then the rest of her is like not at all like me. And I would, but she's those parts are what I wish I were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she, her character came to me almost fully formed during a hike. And I, I get out and hike a lot. I live in rural. Rural. That's a really hard word to say. I've never liked that word. Um, (laughs) I live in rural New Mexico in the mountains, and I like to hike. This was at the start of the pandemic. I was out hiking, and there was a portion of the forest that had burned. You know, we've been having some issues with fires out here and drought. Right. And I remember just looking at it and feeling heartbroken because I was up on this kind of mountaintop, and I could see the fire burn scar, and then in the other direction there's, like, strip mining going on. And I just felt sad for For nature, for what we're doing to the planet, and and it made me angry. And I thought, what I'm not doing anything to help. Like it doesn't. So I wanted to create a character who felt like that, and then decided to do something to help. So Jody used to be a um, a nature poet, like Mary Oliver. That was her career. She taught poetry in in a college in the East Coast, and gets to this point in her life, watching the you know environmental degradation all around us. And she's like, you know what, I think nature doesn't need poets anymore. Nature needs a warrior. And that's the, the shift she decides to make, is she's going to become a game warden. And what game wardens are, they're the only law enforcement officers whose sole job really is, is to enforce wildlife conservation law. So they're the only you know, cops standing between humans and wild animals making sure that we don't poach them or exploit them or take more than, you know, the the ecosystem can afford. And so that felt yeah. symbolic and important to me. So she's sort of this person who loved nature and but was like, man, I've got to do something to help. So that's what she does. Uh, I have a friend who's who's a game warden, and the idea germinated maybe 10 years ago when I was talking to him, and he told me... That game wardens, game warden is the most dangerous law enforcement job you can have in the country. I remember thinking, that can't be true. I lived in Southie, you know, like Austin, yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's, I'm, like in the, near the projects in Southie. This, I mean, there's no way. And I looked it up and statistically game wardens are seven times more likely to be attacked by, um, suspects on the job than Urban cops, right? And I thought, thought, why is that? And it's of course because they don't have partners. You know, cops often have partners. Game wardens don't, Um, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's not unusual to have a patrol territory that's say five thousand square uh, square miles if you're a game warden, and for a lot of that territory, you don't have cell service or radio signal. And you're up against poachers. And so when you think about the psychology of a poacher, what is a poacher? A poacher is a person who feels entitled to kill something they're not supposed to kill as long as no one knows about it and they can get away with it. So when you put all of those things together, it can be a really dangerous, charged situation. And that was intriguing for me, too. And to put a woman in that job, and most game wardens are men, um, most poachers are men, so it just kind of ups the ante as far as danger goes for
3: her. I was just going to say, but you said that, you know, you came, that this character, uh, Jody became, it be kind of came to you full character when you were on a hike. So when that happens, and uh, do you go home and write down this? And do you, have you, did you completely create your character, the things that she liked and doesn't like and her life and her, Family, do you write all this down and have it in a place, and then you put her in the situation? Is that kind of how you create the the book?
0: Yeah, I, in this case, I started with character first. And I'm pretty I, – I, I do a lot of um, foundational work before I sit down to write a book, and not everybody does this the same way. So I mm-hmm. am an outliner, but I, even before I outlined the plot of this book, um, I did – pretty extensive character sketches. I like to do that part by hand uh, with a pen and a legal yellow legal pad. So I'll get a bunch of those and then fill up like almost like a whole legal pad with just details about the character. You know, the physical details, what does she look like, but also you really, you know, I know a lot of people don't put a lot of stock in, you know, MBTI personality tests, things like that, but I find those you know, 16 basic personality types really helpful in crafting characters who are believable and aren't like me, to, so I can kind of look at how these different personality types would interact with each other. So I'll assign a character a personality type. Are they introverted? Are they extroverted? Are they more intuitive or more, you know, you know analytical? So I figure all of that out with her and then figure out her backstory, and a lot of that doesn't ever end up in the book. It's just kind of I need that psychological foundation for her. I like that part of it to feel genuine and real. So, you know, character is really fun and fascinating for me. So that's how I did that and figure out who her family members are, what her relationships are, all of those people, where she's at in her life. And then on top of all of after all of that, I created the plot for this book and right. threw those characters into that story. Well,
3: yeah, and it's important because people – are going to care about the character, right? So the character's got to be there. You got to have uh, information. How do you, how do you um, experience your characters? And I say that because a lot of fiction writers will say, you know, they they see them, they hear them, they um, are they like their family kids. They have all sorts of expressions to describe their characters. What's your relationship like?
0: I love that question. Um, yeah, they do become real. I I do things a little differently. I my training. In writing, I got a master's in journalism, but that's kind of the extent of my formal training in writing. My bachelor's is in music. I'm an auditory thinker, so my approach to characters is is all kind of autodidactic, self-made stuff. So I I guess it's almost like method acting. Once I figure out who the character is, I will try to go through um, parts of a day as that character. Like, I will... Pretend I'm that person. And I'm not doing it, like, out in public and doing strange, weird things. Although I will, you know, sure. I, might go, I might go to the store. <laughs> I might give myself an assignment, like, I'm going to go grocery shopping as Jody. How would she do that? Where would she go? You know, would she get a hand card or the rolly card? And, and just, it, it sounds kind of silly, but that... well,
3: that's all right. Dave, Dave dresses up like a woman and goes out and does his... <laughs> characters right like he's a female wolf and he'll he'll do all that yeah. he's only been arrested twice
0: there you go yeah
3: So, so no, <laughs> I, mean, I about yeah because it's it's important to understand you yeah. got to make the character real yeah right so you've got to make sure that the things they do say and how they behave comes across real otherwise people lose their interest in it right so you, you've yeah. got to do what you got to do there's nothing wrong with that
0: yeah and people what I've found over the years when people love a character it 's because they see themselves in that person right. um, that seems to be the the main reason people like stories really is to feel validated in their own experience of life you know so I try to try to keep that in mind too, keep it very specific to character but also have that character dealing with some universal
3: no i usually well, I usually ask this, but um In this particular case, I guess it's kind of obvious because usually I say, you know, when you write the book, um, of course you're looking to entertain people. That's what people, you know, that's what you're looking for. You're making a connection and entertaining but there's also obviously a subtext here. There's some meaning to it that you want people to get, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing it sounds like it to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, my um, yeah, my work is there's. I don't consider it political, but it, some people call it political. My my, all of my work has been my life. Really, as a person, has been kind of about things being fair. You know, that's really important to me. And even as a very young child, I remember just kind of being so horrified at, at injustice generally. It just felt so wrong. So so wrong. And um in this particular book, that's that's happening at a bunch of different levels. So the game warden part and, and there's poaching of wolves that's going on, there's poaching of deer that's going on. So that's that's an injustice of of a type. In her own life, you know, Jody's she's a widow, but kind of her backstory with that is that she married very young to a man she met at 17, and she was coming out of some childhood trauma stuff, and he seemed really confident and felt safe at that time. But as she got older, she started to understand that it was actually, he was a bit of a narcissist and controlling. But she was, that that looked like safety, because he seemed like he knew, knew what he was doing, you know. So it's, that's another kind of injustice is and. Area of growth where she's feeling guilty because in the year before he dies in an accident, she was considering asking for a divorce. So, you know, what what does that do to you when you're kind of already on your way out the door, they don't know you, and then they die, and everyone expects you to be devastated. And you are sad, but there's also an, a bit of guilt because you feel kind of relieved, you know. So she has that going on. Um, so the the plot of this particular book is she's she tickets a guy for poaching and he's he's a skinhead he's a neo nazi she doesn't know that she just knows there's a deer out of season in the back of his truck and uh he doesn't have a license for it and he becomes obsessed with her. she's the latina game warden in in northern New Mexico New Mexico does not have a racial or ethnic majority as a state i think forty eight percent of the population is what they you know, self-define as Hispano here is the term that, that would be used. Census Bureau would say Hispanic, People would say Latinx, Latino, it doesn't matter what, I, what people call it. That's pretty much very normal here. Growing up with a Spanish surname here, like I did, you get to be, I tell people, you get to be a who instead of a what. You know, your ethnicity is not your identity, um, which is a luxury that you generally is reserved for the dominant class. But this is a guy, she's ticketing, who's from Arizona. He has a very different take on the whole thing. He is, unbeknownst to her, in the area because he's a member of a white supremacist terrorist group that is hiding out in the fictional San Diego National Forest. They're called the Zebulon Boys, and they are plotting to basically blow up a lot of things in the most uh, Hispanic town in America, which is... A fictional town I call Hispaniola that's based a bit on a town called Espanola, but I don't want to get sued. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she just, you know, it starts out with her just, you know, ticketing a guy for poaching. She's being trained on the job. She's the oldest rookie game warden ever hired at age of 45 by the state. And her out, her uncle is the outgoing game warden in that position. And New Mexico, you know, my family, my mom's family has been here for 11 generations. And there are a lot of towns in New Mexico where people speak Spanish because they've always done that. You know, my family got here in the fifteen early 1500s from Spain. And so this idea, and, and New Mexico only became a state in 1912. You know, my grandparents, when they went to school in rural New Mexico, schools were taught in Spanish. That's how it was here. Uh, so this idea that everybody who has this kind of a background in the US is somehow from somewhere else and doesn't belong here and is an immigrant is just really absurd in New Mexico. Um, so here's this guy from Arizona who has that mindset and he's in this little town in Northern New Mexico and here are these two people who are fully bilingual and obviously Jody, you know, did very well as a poet in English, um, but she speaks to her uncle in Spanish and this man overhears it and he gets very angry. And he's like, this is America, you should speak English. And she comes back at him saying, you know, I'm glad you know where you are, <laughs> Travis. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the, you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848 is very specific, which is when, you know, Mexico ceded all of this territory, including this state, to the United States and Colorado and on and on and on. It says very specifically that we are guaranteed the right to continue speaking Spanish here. That's the law in New Mexico. Furthermore, the U.S. doesn't have an official language. We do not. And so she has this little calm, you know, I, I see it as like she's almost Clint Eastwoodian in, in, in her approach. <laughs> she's very calm, leaning into his window like, I'm glad you know where you are. Uh, the, here's the actual law, so you can call me senora. You know, that's... <laughs> The the entry for me, which is like what I wish I could do uh, to people who've said this kind of thing to me all my life. And, of course, that just triggers him and puts her on his radar for destruction. And it begins kind of this cat and mouse chase uh, where he's stalking her and her family and kidnaps her daughter. And it's just um, her trying to figure out what's going on and realizing the problem is actually much bigger than just this one guy. And, she, and along the way, she does not get help from the sheriff of the county. Who And I wanted to show some nuance here. He's also, you know, so-called Hispano, right? But he's, he's a Fox News-watching Republican who does not identify with migrants or Mexicans, even though, you know, somebody like Travis, the skinhead, would not differentiate between him, this sheriff Gurule and the Mexican migrant. To him, they're all the same. But the sheriff is like, you know what? I'm not going to help you because these guys are trying to protect our borders, you know. So she realizes she's kind of on her own. Um, she's not going to get help from certain, you know, law enforcement people who identify with this white supremacist terrorist group. And people have asked me, you know, why are you picking them? Are you playing the race card and all this? No, I'm a I'm a reporter, a former reporter, and right now our own C FBI and um, Homeland Security identify the number one domestic terrorist threat in the U.S. to be white supremacist terrorist groups. They're growing in number, um, and you know you can look at what happened, you know, January sixth to some extent being related to that. It's it's a big deal, you know. We need to the the this the the kind of scapegoating and xenophobia and hate. It's almost like the Civil War really never ended in the U.S. and um, so I wanted to, you know, find a way to address all of that, too, which I think is, is pretty dangerous.
3: Well, as, as, as you're plotting this novel, I was just wondering, you know, and you're, you're, you're doing, like, the method acting uh, through your characters. Yeah. Uh, do your characters ever surprise you? Do they kind of take, take that plot and, and kind of try to pull it off the rails?
0: Yes. <laughs> happening right now. I'm writing book two. I mean, I wrote it and I'm doing some edits on it. When I sat down and plotted out the book, I wanted Jody to have a second chance at love. You know, I wanted her to have some love interests. And in the first book, she meets a couple of them and she picks one of them, who's this ranch manager named Lyle Daggett. He's a bit older than her. He's a former military interrogator, just kind of a stoic, Quiet guy, but he's really funny and really smart, and she just loves him. he's just kind of that you know stoic cowboy archetype and I wanted her right. to 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 fall in love with him and 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 she does start dating him and in the second book, I wanted them to start developing that, but Jody surprised me by pushing back like I don't <laughs> want to commit to anybody, which is really a weird thing when i' when I'm the person creating the character and writing her uh and I wanted her to you know. To find love and be healed again. And she's kind of like, not so fast. You know, I married at a really young age and didn't have a lot of experience. And maybe I want to date a few people before I settle down with this guy. And he's, you know, he's a widower too. He's older than she is. And he's very much a one-woman guy and wants to settle down with her. He thinks she's fantastic. And she's pushing him away. So that part surprised me. Because personally, I would like her to, and I actually, someone just sent me an email yesterday, like, I just finished the book, and I only have one request for book two, which is, you know, a a hot and heavy scene with these two. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I don't know if I can write that, because she she doesn't react to him that way. She doesn't trust him. So she's coming out of this controlling relationship and kind of just coming into her own at this, you know, the age of 45, 46. So that, that part was interesting. Um, that she's actually pretty happy alone. I didn't expect that.
3: Do do you think about how you're going to write um, any sort of violence on the page? Do you think about how it's written or displayed for people to read when something bad happens in the book?
0: Yeah, I did get, you know, when we were submitting the book around to a bunch of publishers, yeah, that was a comment we got from a few times from editors who passed was they thought the book was too violent. Which I found interesting because there are lots of violent books out there. I, I'm a Stephen King fan. Those books are violent. And I guess they are horror and this isn't exactly a horror genre, but Dean Koontz writes a lot of violent stuff too. I, I try not to be too graphic. There are hor- horrific things happening in this book. So to gain entry into this terrorist group, you have to, it's a, it's a very super secret society and the uh, leader Vets, you know, potential members very carefully, and then they have to prove themselves by kidnapping a quote unquote Mexican woman, bringing her to him. Like, that's so that's the, the book opens with these women in a hole in the ground in the forest, like in a pit where he's keeping them. And one by one, they take them out, and this group hunts them. So, that's pretty horrific. It's violent, um, it's terrifying, and um. You know, and there are, you know, severed body parts. The very first chapter does open with, the, I think, the first sentence is, you know, severed heads never smell good, something like that. <laughs> um, but it's a deer head. We just don't know that until the middle of that paragraph. But I kind of play with it. I try to keep it, you know, that's a terrible, horrifying sentence, but just by phrasing it that way, it keeps it a little bit lighter. So, I try to be cognizant of that. I'm sure it's probably a little bit too violent for some people and not bloody enough for others, but I can't please anybody.
3: Well, you got to have realism too, right? Yeah. You you know, you got to try to be somewhere in the middle somewhere, I guess. Yeah. Um, Sorry,
0: I was going to say, and my my editor at Thomas and Mercer, it's been such a great experience there too. I love that. Um, She's an animal lover, as am I, and that's part of why she likes this series. But when you're dealing with poachers and the reality of the life of a game warden, there's a lot of violence against animals. And so she and I have kind of gone back and forth about some of that, where she's real aware that, that readers, readers are, they react better to violence against people than they do violence against animals. Oh, yeah. You know, and when yeah. it's in, in, in told in detail. So how do you walk that line when you're writing about a game warden? Um, and you have to write about poaching, or even you know animals in the wild being predators. How do you do that without upsetting readers? That's been kind of something that I've been wrestling with too.
3: Yeah, and I, to, to be honest, I don't know how you can really achieve that because um, I'm totally into animals. I've been rescuing dogs now at my place for I get the I get the old dogs from the pound, five oh. and older, from because I have acreage and I've I've always done that. Well, twenty. 5 years. And um so if i see something or i'm reading something and somebody just brutally slaughters an animal quite often i stop watching it and i don't read anymore. That's it. It's over for me. Yeah. Whereas you can do that to humans and i'm fine. <laughs> because i think humans deserve it. it humans do yeah. so much more. Yes. Uh, They're so much more malicious than, I think you look at an animal as, well, they're just living, and they don't have the intelligence, and they're sort of living for today and doing their thing, and here along comes some human, and they use them for whatever, you know, a jacket, you know, or something, and it's just sort of, it's just sort of, for me, I'm not, so I, I, I see that. I don't know if there's really a point where I could accept it. I understand your book, I think it's fascinating, and I think this is what, People need to read and see and see more about what's going on, you know. But nothing disturbs me more than that. So it's hard for me to get into it.
1: Yeah. For that,
3: reason. do you know what I'm saying? I but, do,
0: and and I'm in the same boat. I mean, I love animals too, and I I always get dogs from shelters, and they're always mutts, and uh, yeah. cats too. And you know, part of the impetus for writing this book was being outraged at how horrible our species is to all of the other species um so yeah that's that's the challenge of it and and in writing book two which is called blood mountain i initially started it with something terrible happening to a dog and we ended up you know my my editor it it, and, and he survives it and he's fine but it's just so horrifying to read that, and I told it from the dog's point of view. I, I sometimes will write. The animals become characters in this series, too, so I will try to write. I wrote a chapter from the point of view of a mountain lion. I'm not out, like, crawling on rocks. I was going to say, you go
3: out and you dress up like a lion, and then you're laying on a rock <laughs> out in the middle of the wilderness, and you we, kind of think, well, now what do I do? You
0: know, we <laughs> laugh about that, but it, in uh, the Jemez Pueblo here, when when I was in grad school, I did some research out there, and the Native American nation, the Hames, uh, for a long time in the Pueblo communities here, they they have these ceremonial animal dances, they call them, where people will dress up as an antelope or a buffalo or something, and they the, the men generally, and it's yeah. art, it's a religious thing, but they will go and live as that animal for a number of days outside, uh-huh. and you'll see them, you know, out hopping around and doing the things but the idea of doing that is to have respect for you know the animals that you depend on to survive yeah oh so, yeah yeah but I didn't I didn't do that but, um <laughs> yeah so I did scrap the the whole dog violence thing and yeah so the, the book now opens with uh, <laughs> book two I, I guess I can say this there's there's a woman who has a pet bear she's a bit eccentric lives by herself she's kind of a prepper. And she's out walking her bear. She rescued him from a fire when he was little. They come across a person who's been murdered, like, in a stream. He's been shot with an arrow. And it's getting to be torpor time, which is, you know, hibernation time for bears. And her bear is grown up now and very hungry. She kind of is like, well, <laughs> guy's already dead. Yeah. so <laughs> She lets the bear eat him, you know. And, like, that complicates the the murder, solving the murder because any evidence has now been eaten by the bear, and was he actually killed by the bear? So that's kind of, but I, and I, but I think people can handle that, because it's kind of, again, it's kind of funny. Like, it's horrible, but yeah. also, you know, if he doesn't, he's 400 pounds, lives in my house, and if he's hungry and we get snowed in, you know, he loves me, but he also would eat me. So yeah. this guy's not going to well. feel any pain.
3: So, um, yeah, I can see what happened to your husband then. (laughs) (laughs)
0: No. (laughs) no. He's just fine.
3: (laughs) He's just fine. So what makes a good book for you? Like, what is it you look for uh, in a book?
0: Oh, gosh. My two favorite writers, I think I mentioned Dean Coates and Charles Dickens, and I think they have so much in common, weirdly. They both, um, I, I think... I prefer commercial fiction um, to literary fiction, ju- usually, because I think it's utilitarian. Like it's it's pop. It's for the people. Like who are you writing for? And I I, I see there's like I want books that are written for a general audience that aren't elitist in any way. Just because I as a writer, I I, I like it. I like, I like it when the writer doesn't get in the way. So I feel like in literary fiction, a lot of times the writer is like, Hey, look at me! Look what I can do! I'm such a great writer. I don't like that. I like it when the story catches you, the characters catch you, and the writer is really just the conduit for that. So Koontz does that, Dickens does that. And 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 they but they write really well. So that's the thing. It's it's hard to write in a way that feels easy to read. Commercial and and Tr- Tr- Dickens wrote commercial fiction for his time that told stories that mattered to people and were imbued with humor. And social commentary, so that's what would make a good book for me. Something that's really clean, um, accessible, fast-moving, well-written, with something important to say, and keenly observed. You know details about people and and the interaction between and among care I love all of that.
3: Yeah, Dean Koontz. I think I've heard of him.
0: <laughs> I'm just like that guy. I don't know if if you ever have synchronicities happen in your life, you know, but whenever I read his stuff, even when I'm writing, I have weird synchronicities, too. It's like I'm, you know, tuning into some kind of collective consciousness. And there's no writer I've ever read where that happens when I'm reading him, too. And I've heard him talk uh, in interviews that he has these kinds of serendipitous coincidence kind of things happen When he's writing, too. I just feel like he's, I don't know, he's got like some kind of brain where he's just tapping into something. You know.
3: Hallucinogenics.
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) He he would say it's God, and I'm not sure I disagree with that, but I do think he is um, highly developed spiritually as a person, and it shows in his writing.
3: He was on the show. um, Oh, okay. Yeah, we had him on, yeah, just last year. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. I uh, when So we have the same publisher now. And when I was like, I'm going to become a suspense writer, and my book, book got bought by his same publisher, I it, I could have died. I was just like, <laughs> the most <laughs> amazing. I'm such a creepy fangirl. I'm sorry. I guess.
3: I'll send you his phone number. How's that?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you can stalk him. Yeah. And
0: you know it's funny. I always tell people, don't meet writers that you like because they're going to—they're no, always going to disappoint you. I know I will.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't—I don't, <laughs> don't, I don't, don't any me. of that anymore. No. <laughs> no, I used to, and I don't anymore. After I had uh, a bad experience, a couple of them, I realized that it's better not to meet them. It, not just writers, just TV people. I've all sorts of people that you meet that you kind of really like. They're your heroes, and then until you're sitting down in front of them, and then they start saying things, and you're like, "Oh my god!"
0: Oh my god, I hate you! Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah,
3: your, I'll never watch your show again. I know, <laughs> and that happened, and and mm-hmm. so I take it or leave it. I, I it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so, yep, there you go. I'm not going to you know. say who
0: it was, but I met a writer I really admired, and and still admire, but he's a very dirty person in that he does not bathe. And oh. and one of the first really? things that happened was, well, I could smell him. It was quite disturbing. And then, like, some sort of maggot fell from his hair oh. onto <laughs> his sweater as we were talking. And I just oh, thought, I can't, I, I wish I'd never done this. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. now yeah. you're ruined for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's best to just, you know.
3: It's best to say no.
0: Yeah, just let us you know. be whatever you imagine us to be.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's better that way. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just say no. You know, get a dog, get a cat, and say no. <laughs> exactly. Watch them on TV. Um, well, listen, when you when you write a book, like when you completed this book, how do you think it changed you?
0: Oh wow, um, this book. So I, I'm one of these people who got, I got COVID in February, probably late February of 2020, like way before everybody, and never got well. So there's this subset of people who get long COVID, and it, it damages your immune system to the point they wondered if I had HIV because my T cells were gone. And now there's all kinds of research coming out saying, you know, COVID does damage your CD8 cells and all of this. So when I wrote The Hollow Beast, I was very sick. And it was like I went from being a very healthy person, trail running several times a week, and to being a chronically ill person. Which I didn't expect, because that's not what we're told. We're told, oh, you're going to be fine. You're going to get over this and whatever. And it, in, in the case for me, that didn't happen. So writing the book, I, I am a single parent. My son's in college. And I'm putting him through college, and I don't have anybody to fall back on. So I, I have to work. Uh, so figuring out how to write this book in this new physical state where everything hurt all the time. And I did have moments of brain fog and not being able to focus, not being able, you know, just being really, really sick. And I was able to do it. So that, what I learned from that, so it's not necessarily the content of the book that changed me, but I feel really strong, Uh, as weird as that sounds, even though I'm in a weakened physical state, that I was able to accept what what I think... I couldn't function until I finally accepted that I was probably never going to get better. And then I I told myself, okay, so what if I was born right now into this body and physical pain? And this is all I ever knew. Would I still, as a newborn in this, waking up in this, be able to find beauty and, you know, a reason for existing uh, cause the pain can be so bad. And, and the answer was yes, I could still see color. I could still hear music. I could, and so I try to focus on all of those things and writing this book, I think was a journey back to happiness and peace in spite of feeling terrible. Um, so I feel really proud of it that I was able to get it done. And that, that's what it taught me that by not hanging on to what I had lost and instead focusing on what I still had. Uh, I was able to continue to function as a person.
3: It's great. Do, do you think that changed your writing? Um or the way you write? you know
0: what's weird? it the reviews of this book, so this book has already done better. It was like an instant bestseller on a bunch of different lists. and it's like the the reviews are really good. Um, it's been optioned for TV show already. I, I okay. feel like maybe because of the deliberate nature of having to write while I'm sick hmm. um. I became a, a cleaner writer and a better writer for it. It's very strange. But, yeah, I feel, Interesting. Like, yeah, I feel like it's uh, the best written book that I've ever created, which is counterintuitive, really.
3: Well, so now um, let's talk about how people find you. Oh. How do people find you? Do you have, like, social media accounts? Do you have a mm-hmm. website? Like, uh, how do you want your readers or fans to find you?
0: Okay, so, yeah, I have a website. I need to change the web address because when I, in my previous career as an author, I was Elisa Valdez Rodriguez. That was my married name hyphenated. I've gone back to my maiden name. Um, but my website is, uh, Elisa dash Valdez with an S dash Rodriguez dot com. And there are links on there for all my social media. I'm on, um, I do have a Facebook author page. But nobody sees those posts anymore unless I pay Facebook, and I refuse to do that. So that's – I am posting on there. I used to get, like, thousands of likes. I have 11,000 followers on there, and now my reach is, like, 120 people. Wow. Because like, mm. that's what Facebook's game is, right? You get dependent on your fan base, and they're like, hey, do you want to boost this post for 50 bucks? Yeah. Uh, no. No. Uh so you can find me at author Alisa Lynn Valdez on Facebook, but I don't know if you'll ever see my posts unless you look for them. I'm on Instagram um as author Elisa Lynn Valdez and people seem to see those pretty pretty much I'm on TikTok. I don't know how to use it and all my TikToks are terrible. Uh and we'll the, just dance. Yeah, and if you want the super like angry impulsive of me, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> as Uh, Lisa
3: Valdez Rod One. Yeah. Well, there you go. Fantastic. Of course, we'll have all that up on the website. People can find you with one click, and we really appreciate you being here. Um, Thanks for having me.
0: It was fun.
3: Now, the book we're talking about is called Hollow Beasts, and it's Jody Luna Book One. And our guest is the writer of that, Lisa Lynn Valdez. Thank you for being here.
0: You're so welcome. Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks, Lisa.